News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers. The city. I'm Professor Christina Greer, here with Harry Siegel, and we've got lots to talk through. But first, a programming note from Crazy Harry. FAQ NYC is brought to you by The City, a nonprofit newsroom that holds New York's powerful account and shines a light on NYC's undercovered neighborhoods. And from now through the end of the year, every dollar donated to The City will be doubled thanks to a generous matching donation. To power the city and FAQ NYC's essential local reporting, donate at thecity.nyc slash give. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. Can't be beat. But wait, there's more. Give $20 a month or more on Thursday, December 15th, and you'll get the best tote bag in New York City and the best reporter's notebook, both emblazoned with the iconic Nelly the News Pigeon. Don't cop out, cop that stuff. And with that, let's jump right into just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York. Thank you, Harry. P.S. I have the tote bag and I love it. So, starting with the news. Edgardo Mejias, 39, on Sunday became the 19th inmate to die in the custody of New York City so far this year, the most in at least two decades, and even as the jail's population has dropped dramatically. Manhattan federal judge Paul Crotty, a former corporation counsel for then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani, put off any decision on a temporary restraining order that lawyers and advocates for the mentally ill have requested in response to Mayor Eric Adams' new involuntary removal directive that went into effect two weeks ago and says the police can forcibly bring people who appear to be severely mentally ill and unable to take care of themselves to hospitals for evaluation without their consent. The NYPD's auto pound in Red Hook, part of an evidence facility that includes items from cold cases, many of which were stored in barrels after being damaged in Hurricane Sandy a decade ago, went up in smoke on Wednesday in a fire possibly started by an e-bike battery. COVID numbers are rising again, along with flu and RSV hospitalizations citywide as the computer systems remain down at the one Brooklyn health system covering Brookdale Medical Center and Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center and some of Brooklyn's most vulnerable neighborhoods in what appears to be a ransomware attack now in its third week. Meantime, former controller Scott Stringer has filed a defamation suit against Jean Kim, whose claim that he assaulted her in 2001 when she said she was an intern on his campaign. He says she was a volunteer, derailed his mayoral campaign last year, but was never independently corroborated. Stringer's suit uses a novel theory to argue that the statute of limitations isn't up on Kim's claims. And if his case proceeds to discovery, it'll be very interesting to see what emerges about an accusation and then a subsequent one that came from the same lawyer that reshaped the mayoral race. Republicans in the meantime, are pushing for an independent investigation of Attorney General Letitia James and the very quiet investigation she launched during this year's election into sexual harassment claims involving her longtime chief of staff, Ibrahim Khan, who resigned before any of this was disclosed to the public only after the election. The Democrats in control of Albany aren't eager to do that, and it remains to be seen if more shoes drop that could force their hand, either about the office, about Khan, or about how it handled its own investigation. Finally, a new Siena poll out Tuesday showed that crime and cost of living remain by far the top concerns of voters statewide and in New York City. 
And notably, that 50% of voters in the city have a favorable view of Adams, while just 35% have an unfavorable one. Governor Kathy Hochul's numbers in the cities are even more favorable. Speaking of crime, Politico's Julie Marsh reports that Al Sharpton is convening the state and the city's top black leaders, including the mayor, the heads of both houses of the state legislature, and many of the city's DAs for a crime summit in January to try and find common ground on this issue that defined coverage of the gubernatorial election remains a top priority for New Yorkers. Now that that's done and Hochul comfortably hung on, thanks to voters in the city. Chrissy, it's been a long sort of stalemate. We've been talking about since this podcast launched between the more enforcement set, which sometimes includes Mayor Adams and the justice reform set. Do you see any chance in, in the aftermath of this somewhat closer than anticipated election of a breakthrough this coming year, one way or the other? Yeah, Harry, you know, I, th- I think we have a few things going on. One, we always talk about the sort of perception versus reality issue that happens in New York. So is it the reality that your neighborhood is unsafe or you feel unsafe? Or do you just perceive that you are? And here's the thing. If you perceive that the city's unsafe, then that's going to affect how you feel about things. I think, too, we have to remember that, you know, Eric Adams, he did win fair and square. And there's a significant portion of New Yorkers, not just in the outer boroughs, who actually do care about crime. I think, three, we need to look at the gubernatorial numbers to see just how well Lee Zeldin did in the five boroughs. Um, And not just, you know, with rising Asian American populations voting Republican. I think a lot of, you know, New Yorkers, New York City, New Yorkers uh, really do have crime at the forefront of their minds because whether it's reality or perception, they feel like the city is a much more dangerous place. As you and I have said time and time again, the city is nowhere near the 1970s and the 1980s. But that doesn't matter because, first of all, most of these people in New York weren't here during the 70s and 80s. But it doesn't matter because people think that the city feels a little differently. And I got to admit, it does feel a little hot. You know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Unemployment, you know, numbers are still a little wonky. You know, housing insecurity is is still uh, very real for a lot of folks in the city. You know, we've had a really traumatic two years. I mean, I'm not a psychologist by trade, but like, let's be clear. If we really sit back and think about what we've been through collectively as a city, it's been a lot. We're a highly functioning society, sure, but we've been through some stuff. Like I was about to swear, um, but we really have. You know, I, I'm actually looking at some videos I made for my sister, who's a first responder, uh, MD, uh, from the early weeks of the pandemic. And I was, you know, just trying to dress up and make her happy. And, you know, she was really dealing with some horrible circumstances at the hospital and so much death surrounding her and her colleagues. So, you know, I was trying to do what I could. And I had this thing called Spirit Week where I would like dress up and, you know, make her and my cousin, who's also a first responder, hopefully make them smile before they went to work. But I'm looking at these videos now and I'm like, Chrissy, were you descending into madness? Like you were trapped in your house as well. I mean, we all, we all experienced the pandemic differently based on class, based on, you know, some people were terribly lonely. Some people were overwhelmed because they had too many people in their house, right? Some people were in a home by themselves. So we we know these things, but we have to remember these things. And I think that this collective trauma actually directly relates to this conversation of crime. And we're not linking those two enough. There are people who it feels like um, a powder keg sometimes on the subways. It feels like when you're walking down the streets, if you bump into someone, it's no longer like, oh, sorry, my bad. 
it literally feels like someone is going to explode because that could be like the last straw for them, you know, having someone bump their shoulder or scuff their shoes. So I think we have to remember that that is a collective part of the conversation as we try and figure out how to deal with crime and simultaneously mental illness. And as you mentioned, this conversation about Eric Adams saying, you know, folks can, the police can kind of take people against their will. We are seeing more people who just don't seem to have it together. Now, how we define that and who gets to decide what that looks like and what an episode looks like is where the rubber hits the road. And I think it gets a little more uh, complicated. There have been a ton of headlines about how Adams now is going to just be locking up lots of people who are mentally ill or just perceived as mentally ill. I have a lot of questions about what he's doing, starting with whether he's actually or, you know, his his police officers and others are actually going to be doing this. And whatever they say, it does come down to the police. If somebody doesn't want to be taken in for an evaluation and some whatever city workers deciding they ought to be, it's the police who are finally going to be doing that. Yes. Definitionally. Um, that said, taking someone in for a 72-hour maximum evaluation um, is different from what you're getting in a lot of headlines and pieces. Like there's just a Phil Goff piece from Yale in the Times yesterday where he says this is part of sweeps and locking people back up. This is this is more more enforcement. It is taking people against their will, but it's not arresting them. It's not putting them in Rikers. It is a 72 hour thing. Other questions with that is what happens at the end of 72 hours? Are people actually getting Kendra's law, AOT at the other end of this? Are there beds available? And and I'm skeptical on all those fronts, uh, but it is different from from any sort. And, and no one is pretending except headline writers that this is uh, some, some long-term thing that's going to take those people off of the streets and put them somewhere else. It, it really is, for better and worse, to the extent police actually do this, which remains to be seen, uh, you know, a very short-term measure that either, you know, helps people get into care more generally or is just sort of a cruel thing to do that, that ends up right where you started, not even six months later, you know, three days later. Mm-hmm. Um Chrissy, I do want to ask you about this Siena poll and, and some of the numbers in there when we're talking about crime and, and perception. So in brief, they asked three three running questions here. Like, how serious a problem do you think crime is across the state? How about in your community? And how concerned are you in your everyday life? And the overall numbers are 90% say it's very or somewhat serious in the state, 63% in their own community, and 61% say they're personally concerned. Um what jumped out at me is that the, the New York City numbers, right, are 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 at least as as serious. It's ninety percent um, over. I uh, think that crime is serious. Seventy one percent in their own communities. Seventy nine percent of uh, black respondents. Those are statewide, but but obviously many of them are in New York City. Um, and how personally concerned are you? You know, sixty one percent overall. Seventy four percent in the city and among uh, African-American respondents. And so Lee Zeldin is is old news now. They pulled him, and it was weird because his approval number is as high as it's ever been. And you can feel how some people like, held their nose for Hochul and now now want to tell the polls something else maybe. That said, it's harder for me to attribute all that to perception or to the New York Post or whatever when the election is gone. There isn't a political channel making this dominate and there does seem to be a space between like the concerns New Yorkers are expressing, sometimes about their own neighborhoods, mm-hmm. sometimes people live in very safe places, 
and are actually, you know, thinking about other people's neighborhoods. Someone ought to do more policing there. What do you make of those numbers and what are the that they say about what is uh needs to be done and what's politically viable now? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think we've seen the last of Lee Zeldin, sadly. I think he will rear his January 6th supporting, you know, Trump-loving self again. Uh, and I think had he had a little more time, you know, Kathy Oka would have been really in trouble. Um, I do think that the numbers make sense to me in the sense that, don't forget, you know, the vast majority of people watch, like, the 6 o'clock news and their local news. If you watch your local news, the world is on fire at all times. Everyone is going to come and murder you tomorrow. Like, or they're already murdering your neighbor because that's, you know, let's end on sports, weather, and some kittens riding a skateboard. But other than that, it's it's just doom and gloom and danger and danger. And so I think that a lot of folks might say, well, yeah, I do feel, you know, they might feel what a lot of New Yorkers feel, which is, you know, things just feel a little tense. But over there, the neighborhood over there, I know, you know, because I heard from my cousin's brother's sister's friend that, like, Someone got robbed. And I, I think that explains, you know, why people feel that this that the city is is is, is struggling uh under some crime numbers. And like, let's be clear, when we say crime, I mean when you read the news, I mean, if you're just even if you're not a newspaper reader, if you're walking past newspapers, you know, you walk past, you know, post daily news sometimes, even it's like things are going down. Everything, you know, everyone's being robbed, raped, or murdered. Um, and so there's just a, a vibe of this doesn't feel like the good old days. Now, let's also be clear. When we have Black mayors, crime is always a more prominent issue. It is. Like, the data over time, you know, I study mayors, I write about mayors. The data over time says that when you have a white mayor, crime may be up, but, like, people just don't talk about it the same there's this assumption that when you have a black mayor that, you know, they're going to let all the, the Negroes run free. And this is how and why crime is so, so large. And so there's always this fear that if you have a black executive, that all of a sudden the city will become unruly. Now, there is sometimes a correlation where when the city is becoming unruly, that's when black mayors get elected. So we can we can talk about that long-term, you know, hollow prize data that has been, you know, sort of talked about in, in large and small cities across the country. But there is always a much more prominent conversation about crime when you have a Black executive at the top of the ticket uh, leading a city. And Black leadership at an unprecedented level, right, at this point across the uh, across the state. So if you look at this thing Sharpton's putting together, you know, it's like the attorney general three or four U.S. attorneys, uh, the lieutenant governor, mayors of New York and Buffalo, uh, the two biggest cities, obviously an order of magnitude difference, mm -hmm. uh, New York City's police chief, Manhattan's DA, right? This is, uh, if, if the bar can be unfairly high for Black leaders who often are brought in in difficult circumstances, this seems like those poll numbers suggest that this is a moment of real urgency mm -hmm. to to convince New Yorkers that they're they're doing something about this problem they keep listing as a top concern. Well, shout out to Al Sharpton for convening this. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if a one-day symposium is going to cure anything, but it definitely is a conversation that I've had with a lot of other sort of Black people who care about the city, who, you know, either talk about politics or, or do politics, or journalists who talk about politics, largely because it's like, descriptively, we've never had this much Black representation across the state, ever, in the history of this nation, in the history of the state, in the history of the city. 
So why is it that the life chances and life circumstances of Black people have not been elevated exponentially? And so I think it is worth a conversation with Black leadership, because obviously, if we're going to talk about crime, we also have to talk about education and housing and, you know, mental health issues and post-COVID. I mean, we're not post-COVID, but, you know, COVID-esque issues that have affected uh, Black communities disproportionately. So hopefully that will also be part of said summit and conversation. But I definitely think that, you know, a lot of the conversations I've had, which is like, how is it that we have all this Black leadership, but like things don't seem like they're changing? So is it a structural or institutional problem that we have to deal with? Is it that people get into office and like, that's been the goal, but we haven't had a real substantive conversation about what happens after you get elected? Like, what do you do? You know, a lot of times Black people get elected with coalitions. So in order to feel like, you know, you don't want to seem like you're catering to your Black base or the Black people who got you in office, the pendulum swings in the other direction and you cater to the people who either didn't get you into office or the small subset of non-Black people who got you into office because you don't want to seem like you're you know, playing favorites. Or you go the Obama route, which is, well, my policies will just like lift all boats. And it's like, well, they can't lift all boats because some of us are in a dinghy and some of us are in a yacht. So like the tide's not going to help all of us the same. So I think that this is, these are hard conversations to have amongst Black leadership. And it'll be interesting to see how Sharpton structures that. I mean, you can't have a conversation. It's like, no whites allowed. However, I do think... <laughs> that some of these conversations have to be had internally. I think some of these hard conversations have to be had without eyes and ears of folks that don't fully understand being Black in a city. And then we can open it up to the general conversation. But I am a firm believer of some things have to be in-house first. So, so speaking of difficult conversations and also white interlopers, it's complicated to have Sharpton, who's been citywide figure of different sorts. We've got this new documentary, Loudmouth, out as the person convening this and raising his hand and, and giving this story to to sharing this story with Politico, Julie Marsh there, that he is the person convening it, uh, just, just given his own history, how he's perceived in, in large parts of the city. And, you know, we both had had different conversations with, with with Sharpton about this and how he thinks he's he's uh changed and how he's positioned. But that creates complications, I think, in terms of taking whatever might emerge from those conversations in-house and presenting them in in interesting and challenging ways potentially. Or maybe maybe that's unfair and I've just lived in this city too long and and all this is old news and Sharpton's a guy who meets with Biden now. You know, um, uh, who, who summons New York's political leaders to come to come to him, and uh, his position has just changed. I'd, I'd just be curious your thoughts on all that. Just thinking it through as you were talking. Yeah, but I mean, has his position changed? Don't forget, this is the same man in one week met with Obama and De Blasio. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. like he's summoning new leadership. This is how he rolls. I mean, the man is a phoenix. However, you feel about Al Sharpton, he is a phoenix, and he continues to rise from the ashes. Why? Because he's really politically smart and people stay underestimating this man. And like, you know, you can talk about Al Sharpton from the 1980s all you want. Sure. But this man's a power broker. And I do think that, you know, my level of respect for him comes from two things. I think, you know, as I've said on the podcast, 
tons of times, I love cities and Black people. And I think that he does too. And so I do think that this convening, I don't know what comes from the convening, but I think the convening has to happen because we can't, we can't keep going down this road of Black leadership and Black people get nothing. And the specific history of Black people in this city of exclusion and this, you know, gentrification and being pushed out and pushed, you know, like these numbers at Rikers aren't coincidental, you know, like crime only happens in six neighborhoods. Please, as I've said many times on this podcast, I have gone to private school my entire life. I teach in private school. If you want to find drugs, <laughs> it's called dorms. Go find it, right? So our conversations about safety and, you know, equity, I mean, they're bogus. And I think that there's a certain level of exposure that needs to happen about, like, what do we mean when we say we're all living in this city together? And, like, what does leadership really mean? Because I I understand the constraints of leadership. I think I do, right? Uh, a lot of folks don't really have the budgets that they think they have. You know, Mayor Adams' budget is largely spoken for. He doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. You know, you think about a public advocate, it's like, well, I mean, you know, it's it's somewhat a, a symbolic job. It's also the job that you make it, right? Same with certain legislative positions, et cetera. So I don't, I don't know what will come of the summit. Hopefully, now, because your our bet is coming closer and closer to a close, hopefully the mayor will want to come on the podcast and talk to us about um, crime and mental health and what he thinks is the best solution. Um, you know, maybe we can do FAQ field trip and go to the summit, <laughs> even though I just said no whites allowed. But that's just me saying that that's not the summit. Um, but I do, I do hope the mayor will come on the podcast and talk to us. You might owe me dinner. What's what's our due date? Because it's looking more and more like I can order everything off the menu and you're paying for it. Oh, man. Uh, bosses at the city <laughs> will discuss expense accounts here. <laughs> um, I, I, I just, just Al Sharpton is incredibly smart. He's not somebody plainly to be underestimated. He's been underestimated at other people's risk for a very mm-hmm. long time. Simultaneously, as the person convening this, right? And this is these different conversations. When you're talking about rising from the ashes, there's a whole number of people who who hear that and immediately are thinking, not the 80s, but the 90s, and whose minds go to Crown Heights and then to uh, Freddy's, uh, the store that burned down um, in 95, I believe, in Harlem. Uh, and, and, and the complications of having him as a central figure, which actually takes me back to this Siena poll and how differently... Everything in New York seems to be perceived within the city than in the rest of this state. Uh, mm-hmm. General fears about crime aside, it's it, it's tricky, and 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 this is right. This has been the question since the '60s in a lot of ways, and through generations now of of black leadership that's taken different approaches. Is how can you hold on to maintain power, do right for communities that have been in significant ways left behind? while maintaining broad enough political support to do that. And who are the people you put forward? Who are the ones who need to uh, step back behind the scenes for, for, for all that to happen? I think it's a really interesting moment. And after this very scary, but not all that much change for Democrats state race, 
what happens this year with where it's like, let's push forward with new reforms. Let's make sure that landlords or employers can't see criminal histories and things like that versus where do we need to be uh, doing more enforcement um, is in some ways the whole game. And and obviously, we're not going to sort that all out this week. I know, right. but uh, there's, there's a lot to dig into. And can I just add really quickly, the what we have to remember are two things. One, there was a systemic disinvestment of cities when white flight happened and then it was middle class flight but in a lot of cities especially in new york when like black people were kind of like left back in the cities there was like a planned disinvestment on the local state and federal level so like cities are living organisms but they are planned living organisms and so we can see the direct disinvestment of public housing when white people leave and black people and latino people move in i mean all of these things every single policy in America is rooted in racism, not race, racism. So the layout of every city is rooted in racism. The layout of every single housing, education, environmental, transportation, you name it, it's rooted in racism. So we have to remember that like Black people are living in this organism that oftentimes from 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even today is largely led by white people who have like, who have understood that and they've done that. That's one. Two, States are red. When you leave cities, they're red. So New York is red. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, like, you know, all these states, as Malcolm X reminds us, <laughs> are Southern states. So like, this is the second you leave the five boroughs, which mind you now, they were a little purple this time, by the way, not blue. Um, but when you start leaving major cities, the whole state is red. So these conversations about crime and leadership aren't going to go away because folks have very specific thoughts about there's a reason why people leave cities. They don't want to be with immigrants and people of color. I mean, that is when you poll people like, why did you leave a city? It's like, because I don't want to live with people who don't look like me. Like That's just what America is about. So until we can have those honest conversations about what states really look like and what New York State in particular really looks like, not just every four years during a presidential election, I think it'll help people understand some of these conversations much more clearly. I think that New York held its Democratic supermajorities in both houses of the legislature may be productive for that conversation in certain ways. Like that was one interesting threshold here. I also think if racism is not something that is going to disappear or go away and is stamped on the territory as well as the map in all these significant ways, the really interesting questions as New York is, it's been about gentrification and displacement for 30 years now about what happens if that really shifts as there were signs of during the pandemic and reasons to think that might continue afterward and the people who are more easily able to leave who are more likely to be a uh, white and affluent shift out of the city and thus some of the marginal politics of this of, of, of who, who is part of this city coalition that we and who's part of the broader state ones the redder ones that often define themselves against those core cities as lee zeldin did that the, the terms of that conversation may shift depending on where the population is and depending on, on who's stake to having trains that work. And that really matters, but you're going to be on those trains versus who's just reading stories about, oh, some more scary shit happened. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I'm not there and around mm -hmm. those things. And maybe mm -hmm. I don't want my kids going to school there or whatever. Right. And not just those things, those people.
Let's let that linger as our closing note here. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. From now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to the city will be doubled. And you can do that by going to thecity.nyc slash give today. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Online at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were Christina Greer, professor at Fordham University, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. I'm our engineer, Adam Kimara. Thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.